0: Welcome to the inaugural podcast of Common Sense Leadership with your host, Dr. L.D. Bennett. Common Sense Leadership is an influencer podcast that will make you think, laugh, and act. Thanks for tuning in. Now let's join our host, Dr. L.D. Bennett. Hi, I'm Dr. L.D. Bennett, LD as I am known. I am over the moon excited to welcome you to my new venture, Common Sense Leadership Podcast. Common Sense Leadership is an influencer podcast, providing practical wisdom for leadership and for life. This podcast is the passion project that feeds my soul. This is my way of both paying it forward and blessing my spirit all at the same time. Wow, what a joy. So what's the purpose of an influencer podcast, you might ask? But well, my purpose is also my imperative, and that is to inspire, to inform, to share, and to challenge individuals, communities, and organizations. Challenges them to do what? To achieve their next level, whatever that might be for them. I'm blessed to have spent over 35 years in the personal growth, leadership development, and organizational effectiveness space. My experience in those areas gives me firsthand knowledge and proven solutions that will empower you to be the absolute best version of yourself. You will hear sound counsel, lessons learned, and some of them learned the hard way, but valuable nonetheless. My imperative is to see others achieve their goals. That's what makes me happy. That's what gets me up in the morning. I'm excited about what we'll do together to inspire excellence and to drive positive social change at a time when both are much needed. Hi, this is L.D. Bennett. We are back and we're going to lead you into our inaugural podcast interview with Professor D. Wendy Green. She's gonna to talk to us around our topic for the month. Our theme for the month is now what? From performative support to positive social change. The reason we, we chose this subject is with all of the social disruptions going on, with all of the change that's happening around us, we needed someone to anchor our conversation to anchor what we're going to talk about and how we're going to build upon this theme as we go throughout the month. Now, I am extremely excited about this guest because I have known her since she was in middle school and someone is dating themselves me. Uh, Professor Green uh, is a professor of law at Drexel University. And one of the things that I'm most proud of about her is her life's work has been in the area of public service around the law anti-discrimination laws and how do we adjust? How do we move past the discrimination that that all of our people face and how do we make this work for us? And she's done a a ton of work around uh, this uh, discrimination around hair, freeing the hair and the Crown Act. And I want to give her an opportunity to talk about that, but I do wanna say just a word about uh, her lineage. Her parents are both uh, civil rights activists. Her father passed away a few years ago, and I've been a part of that family for over 25 years. Her mother is one of my dearest friends, and the both of them were civil rights activists. Wendy, I love to call her Wendy, but that is Professor Green, is a scholarly activist and she's been doing a lot of work around the Crown Act and and hair discrimination. So I'm gonna just go right to her. I'm gonna allow her to tell her story. I'm gonna ask her a few questions that will help noodle this out for you. But I'm really excited about hearing more about her work and about what kinds of things we can do going forward. So Professor Green, it is so exciting to have you on the program, welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Diane. This is truly, truly such um, a joyous occasion and congratulations on your podcast. I, it's an honor to be a I'm part so of it. excited.
0: <laughs> me too. Thank you. So, when, <laughs> let's, let's, just, let's just jump right in. So, so, one of the things I wanted you to talk about, kind of grounding the conversation, is you have a distinct honor, this distinct honor of having parents that were a part of the civil rights movement and the great things that happened there. And then you were able to be a part of, an active part of what's going on right now. So can you talk to us about some comparisons and contrasts to the civil rights movement of the 60s and 70s and where we are today? Sure,
1: so as you mentioned, both of my parents um, were civil rights adv- advocates and activists um, and also integrationists. Uh, during the 1950s, 60s and onward, to be frank. And I have to say that, you know, we are part of still a wave of integrationists, um, even in the in 2020, um, as um, you may know, or know you know, is that I'm one of the, I'm the first African-American tenured uh, woman law professor at Drexel University, Thomas R. Klein School of Law in 2020. So that tells you that many of the struggles and the challenges, the kinds of um, things that we were facing in the 1960s and 70s are still very much the same as it relates to uh, racial integration, as it relates to integration on the basis of gender as well. Um, In terms of the civil rights movement of the 60s and 70s, um, we were still very much trying to confront very explicit and express forms of say racial discrimination, of racial uh, separation and segregation in ways in which it's not the case today, even though there's still very much uh, systemic, uh, de facto discrimination that is uh, akin to what we were dealing with in a Jim Crow era. Um, So we're not necessarily fighting the whites only signs, but we are still very much trying to combat and confront uh, the legacies of white supremacy, the legacies of racial slavery and racial apartheid in this country. Uh, One of the major things I would say that may be different from the movements of the sixties and seventies, I really call this moment another reconstruction. I'm not quite sure which iteration, if we're in the third or the fourth reconstruction, if you will, but we are challenging you know this this notion that was definitely proliferated and propagated uh, when uh, President Obama was running for office that we're living in a post-racial society and they had racism is something that is anomalous um, that is very much individualized um, and it's really sort of the the manifestation of someone who is an active and expressed and vocal white supremacist and that's not the case. Um, we're having you know we're really confronting much more subtle, uh, what people may call today, microaggressions, daily indignities that our forefathers and foremothers were facing but in a, in, a, in a context in which people are not recognizing it as uh, racism because of this notion of post-racialism or colorblindness that we're so much better than we were before because we're not, um, you know, Governor Wallace types or Strom Thurmond types, right? But in actuality, we're still facing um, those same kinds of daily indignities, discrimination, um, marginalization and sort of subordination under the cloak of being sort of racially innocent as my, my good friend would say, uh, Professor Tanya Hernandez, and we're not. And I think that is something that uh, is very different in the ways in which I think we were much more willing as a society to admit uh, to racism during the sixties and seventies, and that we needed to to dismantle it. Today, we're faced with um, that 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 uh, that juxtaposition uh, where we thought and have been thinking, many of us have been thinking that we are sort of racially innocent. Um, the other thing I might say that is different about uh, the past and today is that it's we have technology, uh, techn- technological differences um, where literally when you're talking about a movement, you don't necessarily have to have a leader of the movement. People are mobilizing and 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 become advocates just by virtue of their cell phones, <laughs> which was not the case um, during the 60s and the 70s. And then lastly, I would say that in addition to the technological advancements and progress and the speed with which we are getting information and able to see you know, very clear examples of um, discrimination and inequities um, in this country, uh, but we're able to see it around the world. So what's happening here is very much connect- connected to what's happening in other countries and vice versa. We're able to see our similarities and our commonalities as it relates to combating discrimination in much in, in much more immediate ways by virtue of technology. And we're able to mobilize much more quickly uh, through technology in ways in which we weren't able to do in the 60s and 70s. And um, and so I, I really do believe this mo- movement or this moment is much more technologically advanced and driven um, than in the past, as well as Um, much more international, not to say it wasn't then, but much more international as well as intersectional. Um, So we are thinking about the ways in which, you know, it's not just about anti-Blackness simply, but it's how anti-Blackness plays itself out at the intersection of other identities like our gender, our color, our religion, um, our our, our sex, um, sexual orientation, as well as gender identity. So there's those. There's, there's just a few ways. I, I didn't think it was going to be that many ways, but actually there are some very stark differences between the '60s and, and today.
0: Well, thanks for sharing that because I you really set the tone because I needed some context, and I'm sure my listeners needed some context around how are things different. Uh, I work with a lot of people and I'm sure you've met with a lot of people that say I thought we were beyond this. I thought mm-hmm. I thought this was already mm-hmm. settled. And but yet we find ourselves in in even more uh, more blatant ways that that we're faced with things and and so when you talk about uh, this new integration or this new level of integration and you talked about and I do want to compliment you I kind of stuck my chest out when uh, when you were when I found out that you were tenured at Drexel uh, as a law professor I mean I, I think my head was like super big bigger than it normally is but I was super <laughs> proud of you but one of the things I want you to to, to talk about if you would is, is talk about How do we move from, yes, we have a black person to being an organization, an institution, or even a community that opens up to make it not an anomaly, but the norm, because this person is the best person, the most qualified. And I say that because part of our theme this month is around performative support. And as you know, mm-hmm. you will see corporations, you'll see organizations that have put the Black Lives Matter logo on their on their website, and they'll put a big a big uh, page up on their website saying, you know, we believe in equity, diversity, and inclusion, and blah 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 blah. And everybody's doing it; we check the box. But yet, when we're in the workplace, we have people being discriminated against because of their choice of hairstyle and so mm-hmm. I wanted to segue into how do you look at and how would you help us work through the performative support aspect of an organization and then embracing all of its employees in the, in, in their authentic selves however they want to come and then talk a little bit about your work around um, natural hair and the crown act if you would
1: Sure, sure. So, it's a, you know, those are all great questions. And it's things that I have been thinking very deeply about and even, you know, providing some public commentary about as it relates to Black Lives Matter and organizations and namely employers who have espoused support for Black Lives Matter. But when, say, for example, their employees are actually wearing Black Lives Matter masks or Black Lives, Ma- Black Lives Matter paraphernalia, then they are being um, discriminated against and retaliated against and losing job opportunities for that um, and so to me that's a really good example of performative allyship um, in the sense that you know you're for it when it's in public but when you're you know at home basically you're not necess- you're not at, at, you know you're not advancing it um, and that you're punishing and penalizing individuals who are Actively and expressly supporting the the movement and what that means, which is you know um, you know and you know policies and practices um, in a culture that has very much centered around anti-blackness and um, alternatively white supremacy, right? So um, you know it, it, it's and it's one of those things that I think. It, what happens is, is that people think that by by saying that you are in support, that you can still maintain the status quo in that particular environment. And I think what's happening today is that people are really challenging organizations and institutions to dismantle, you know, the, the status quo. And that's uncomfortable, right? You think that, you know, business can continue as it always has, but it can't if you're really trying to be you know um an, you know if you're trying to move beyond performative allyship Right. Um, And really being what I call um, an advocate and being an activist. And you have to do that in every aspect of your of your organizational structure as well as decisions. Um, That being said, you know, when we talk about trying to bring in more, you know, what people may today call more diverse candidates. um, um, And that may not be my choice of how to think about it, but. I know that is like the the thing that people are saying today more diverse candidates you really have to int- interrogate you know your hiring practices and your recruitment practices and the kinds of things that are behind you know those explanations when you don't hire someone for example or when you don't promote someone or advance someone or or give them a promotion and related compensation it's you know oftentimes we hear oh well they're just not a good fit You know, and I tell my students all the time, that's just another way of, you know, saying that, you know, there is discrimination. So what does that really mean? You know, when you say that that person is not a good fit, um, a good cultural fit, and 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 are there some relationships to that person's, um, you know, racial or color or gender or religious identity, just for example, or age? It could be among a number of things, right? Um, that really can be uh, sort of animating this idea that this person doesn't belong. And that's basically what you're saying when you say that somebody is not a good fit. Well, Why? Why is it that you feel like they don't really belong in this culture and that they will not be included uh, substantively in your particular culture, in your particular organizational culture? And so one of the things that I have been doing through my work um, on uh, racial discrimination and more particularly around race-based natural hair discrimination is getting people to think more critically about um, even their appearance and grooming uh, mandates or expectations or regulations um, in their decision-making capacity. So. You know, is it that you're saying that this person, say, if it's a Black woman, she won't be a good fit for the organization, um, not simply because she is Black, but maybe because she's a Black woman who's wearing locks or braids or twists or an afro um, versus a straightened hairstyle. Is it something that you are accustomed to? Do you have certain kinds of unconscious or maybe conscious stereotypes as it relates to these natural hairstyles, that they are uh, more unprofessional? Um, And we have plenty of research that has, Uh, that has um, affirmed and confirmed that um, people across all different types of racial backgrounds uh, have, uh, they believe that say natural hairstyles are less professional than say straightened hairstyles. Um, And so is that the reason why is, are you thinking that this is gonna be a certain kind of Black woman, uh, maybe arguably a more assertive black woman, one who um, is very much you know more self confident potentially, one that may not be submissive or be um, subject to marginalization um, and thus your control in ways in which that make you comfortable, and that's something that you have to really think very critically about. So um, there are lots of different types of you know conscious and unconscious stereotypes as it relates to natural hairstyles that in my work um, as it relates to uh, really advocating that uh, discrimination on the basis of natural hair is a form of race discrimination is getting decision makers to think more critically about uh, the biases and the stereotypes that might be operating as it relates to one's appearance or their grooming. Um, That serves as a barrier, frankly, um, a very systemic barrier, um, not only for Black women, but also Black men as it relates to professional entry and
0: advancement. Okay. I love it. So, so talk about the crown act. You, you didn't brag a lot about the, the crown act, but uh, you hear a lot about the crown act in, uh, in the news, uh, in, in the newspaper articles where some, uh, something is being challenged. Uh, and you hear a lot about the legislators and, and they deserve a lot of credit, but the legislature is based upon law and it's based upon research. It's based upon work that others have done the scholars have done and i do want to, to give you your kudos here because you have done a lot of work you have contributed a lot you've been expert witness in, in many many cases around discrimination around hair so talk to me a little bit about the crown act and as an individual what should we know as an individual about the crown act as it as it re, as it re, as it kind of relates to us and what should an organization know about the Crown Act? Sure.
1: Well, um, thanks for that, Diane. Um, As you know, I am one of the legal architects for the Crown Act, which is the Creating a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair Act. And this is legislation that will clarify for our civil rights laws, in particular our federal civil rights laws, as well as some state uh, uh, civil rights laws that um, natural hair discrimination or discrimination on the basis of African descendants, natural hair texture, natural hairstyles, like locks, braids, twists, afros, bantu knots, and so forth, uh, can constitute unlawful race discrimination. And so, for over a decade, for nearly almost 15 years now, I have been uh, researching and writing about the ways in which natural hairstyle uh, or, 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 or uh, bans against natural hairstyles uh, constitute race discrimination and the ways in which our federal courts have not been acknowledging it as such, except for in the cases of Afros. Um, and so I have endeavored to really cure what I call um, a, a hair-splitting legal distinction, <laughs> where uh, you know uh, courts have said that if you discriminate against an African-American on the basis of the Afro, then it's race discrimination. But if you lock, braider, twist that Afro, then magically is no longer uh, race, It's no longer about race, it's about culture. And since Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act does not prohibit discrimination on the basis of culture, um, employers are free to regulate and discriminate um, and make employment decisions and employment practices around our natural hairstyles, as long as it's not an Afro. So what the Crown Act does is really it clarifies that all of those hairstyles um, um, and discrimination on the basis of these hairstyles can constitute race discrimination because since our eras of racial slavery and apartheid in this country, aside from our skin color, our hair texture too has served as a proxy or uh, a a proxy for our racial identity. It has been the basis of our uh, racial enslavement in this country. You could be enslaved simply on the basis of your hair texture, or you could be awarded your freedom simply on the basis of your hair texture, um, to being segregated and separated in our schools, public accommodations, among other spaces on the basis of our hair texture. Um, and then today, that's still happening, right? That There's still that legacy of racial slavery and racial apartheid that is um, is is very much shaping employment decisions that bar African Americans, African descendants, not only in this country, but around the world. From being able to wear their hair as it naturally grows out of our heads. So, what the Crown Act does is very expressly addresses this systemic form of racial discrimination that harkens back for almost uh, uh, four centuries now. Um, and so, it overturns those very narrow uh, legal decisions that were, were articulated by our courts, our federal courts. Um, and frankly, it is really dismantling or helping to dismantle nearly 400 years of lawful race-based discrimination on the basis of our natural hairstyles. Um, so that is the work that I've been doing. I've been um, um, one of the, the co-drafters of the federal legislation. Um, Uh, that it was just recently passed by the United States House of Representatives. I have also uh, co-drafted legislation in other states. Uh, The publications that I've written over the past um, decade or so have been instrumental in bringing about um, enforcement guidance that treats groundbreaking enforcement guidance, um, say for with the New York City Commission on Human Rights that treats natural hair discrimination as race discrimination in public accommodations and housing. In employment, as well as in public and private schools. Um, so, pretty much to date, any kind of legal intervention that uh, declares that natural hair discrimination is race discrimination, uh, my work has shaped. Um, more recently, I will tell you, and I don't know if you know about this, is that I have served as an expert too in litigation. So it's not just about the legislation. You know, you have to. You know, I used to put all. I used to say I put all my eggs in the federal uh, judiciary basket. <laughs> that I wanted to change federal courts and how they were thinking about it. But today, it, 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 you, know, it you know, you know, you terms of strategy, you have to, you have to cover all the bases. So also with respect to litigation, serving as an expert in uh, recent uh, litigation challenging natural hair bands um, in schools as um, a form of um, race discrimination violation of our constitution. And um, one of those cases is dealing with DeAndre Arnold and his cousin Caden Bradford, which is a pretty high profile uh, case that the NAACP Legal Defense Fund brought. And um, I'm happy to say that in light of um, their their advocacy, their uh, you know, excellent advocacy, and the expert witness testimony that I was able to bring to the table to really contextualize, bro- provide a historical as well as social context to this issue, um, that today Caden Bradford is able to rock his locks freely um, <laughs> while he is um, attending his high school in Texas, um, and that too was a pretty groundbreaking decision by that federal district court that recognized the natural hair discrimination. Um, is a form of race discrimination and it also is an infringement upon our cultural expression in violation of our constitution. So that's what I've been doing, that's what I've been busy doing.
0: Phenomenal. <laughs> so if, you know, you had, you had a little time on your hands, okay, so you were doing a few things. <laughs> that is, I mean, it just blows my mind um, just how important your work has been not only for from the academic standpoint, but also from the standpoint of, of just, just black people being able to show up as their authentic selves and be able to, to, to compete and to be able to, to, to express themselves in a way that they do not have to shrink back. I love what you just said and I loved how you how you position that because I have a lot of listeners uh, who are females uh, executives in, in corporate America that are really interested in moving more into, I'd like to wear my hair this way, I'd like to wear my hair that way, but still have some, in, some uh, inhibitions about it. Oh, I don't know if I should do this or not. I don't know what will happen to me if I do this, but really A, knowing the law and knowing what's out there helps not only these individuals, but it also helps organizations. Sometimes we don't know what we don't know, and right. it, it was great to have you on. And before I let you go, I want to do two things. Number one, I want uh, I want you to let your our listeners know where they can follow you. We're going to put it in our on the, in the resource page. I want them to know where they can follow you. Uh, where you're going to be speaking, if you're going to be speaking somewhere, I'd like for them to know that because this is such an interesting topic. And it's also groundbreaking information that all of us should know, especially if we have kids. We have kids in, in high school and college, they need to know, and they, there are a lot of things that we don't know. So tell us where you are and where we can find you, where we can follow you, and then I'm gonna have you to, to give us a call to action as we leave. Sure.
1: Well, you can follow me at Professor D. Wendy or at Free the Hair Now, both on Instagram and on Twitter. Um, In terms of a call of action, I will have to say that now that this bill will be presented, again, it's already been introduced in the Senate, on the federal level, that you can contact your your state senators and let them know that you support the Crown Act. Um, You can can call them, you can write them, you can tweet them, um, let them know that you support the Crown Act. Also, you can sign the petition for the Crown Act at www.crownact.com. You can also talk to your employers about, or your organization, or people that are in leadership in particular organizations and institutions. Um, And this can be a part of this issue, frankly, can be a part of any kind of diversity, inclusion, equity, anti-bias training that you may be um, conducting in your particular organizations. And I will say that um, just recently, the American Bar Association actually adopted a resolution that supports not only the Crown Act um, and also um, the, 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 the kind of ways in which we're talking about in terms of interpreting. Uh, civil rights laws uh, more expansively, but also really calling uh, individuals, um, legal professionals in particular, to include uh, discrimination on the basis of appearance and grooming biases, stereotypes as a part of their anti-bias training. Um, So I I also say that just start the conversation. Start the conversation in your homes, in your workplaces, and uh, get out there and support the Crown Act.
0: Thank you, Professor D. Wendy Green, that's our little Wendy. We love her. <laughs> Wendy, thank you so much for, for being on and for sharing that information. Uh, your interview really grounds our topics as we go forward this entire month. And uh, I, I do hope you'll leave some space open for your big sister so that if I call you again, you'll come back on and share with us. Phenomenal oh, information. Thank you.
1: Anytime. <laughs> thank you, so, thank you much.
0: so much. All right. I love to touch you. Thank you. All right. Thanks for tuning in and for supporting me. I don't take your support for granted. I am both grateful and humbled. Join us next week for another episode. And remember to subscribe and ask others to subscribe. Go to our website at commonsenseleadership.org for more detail. Thank you and have a great day. This podcast and omni-channel experience is brought to you by the Walter Cates Foundation the entertainment and telecommunication industry's leading national foundation, dedicated to advocacy around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we are proud to have them as our signature partner. We are very grateful for their generosity and for their support. To learn more, visit WalterCates.org. Thank you for joining Common Sense Leadership Podcast with your host, Dr. L.D. Bennett, Visit our website commonsenseleadership.org for more details. See you next week.